right, hello everyone. <laughs> I don't know why it sounded like that. It, it reflects the weather outside Maya and Joe's houses. <laughs> yep. So, uh, welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. This is not a sad episode. I don't know why it sounded. Like that. But uh, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham. Uh, this is uh, Joe Szymanski and Dylan Brown, as usual. Uh, we have a fun, exciting episode this for you this week. Um, <laughs> we're really excited to go on. There's been some interesting election news that has happened. Uh, we're we're pretty excited to talk to you about it. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start with probably the big news of the of the week, which is the Maryland congressional uh, district saga had an end. Um, it was a very strange end. Um, so basically, uh, in exchange for dropping the lawsuit against the initial map redraw. Uh, Larry Hogan signed the redrawn uh, gerrymandered map still. Um, seven to one map now, so that's kind of locked in. Um, so it does have a... Oh, as you mentioned this last week, if you tuned into our last episode. Uh, we ha- It has a... Uh, Maryland 6th District goes from about a, a Clinton plus 20... Or a Biden plus 20 seat to about a Biden plus 10 seat, and it would have been a Clinton plus 1 seat. Um, so it's in the in the realm of competitiveness, uh, in the realm of competitiveness, it's there. Uh, we'd probably think we'd have it at leans Democratic or likely de- probably leans Democratic, actually, in the ratings. Uh, this is certainly the sort of seat you could see some suburban swing in. Uh, um, and then another one to keep an eye on, not in terms of winning, but in terms of potential likely seat down the road, would probably be the second district. Uh, this is a district that was actually within 10% in 2016 in the Senate race. Uh, the, the Republican nominee in that race held Chris Van Hollen to an 8% lead there. This is a, a Biden plus 20 seat, I believe now. So not really something Republicans are going to target. But if you're looking for a surprise competitive seat, uh, again, if you take a suburban swing, this is only a Clinton plus 11 seat. So that's the other seat that could potentially be worth paying attention to. Um, so obviously Republicans, some Republicans are happy about this. Others are, are disappointed that Larry Hogan did not push further and push for a fairer map. Uh, Democrats are generally uh, quite happy about this because it's it's a status quo map that is less ugly uh, will not redraw out Steny Hoyer, um, will not redraw no. out any incumbent. I mean, granted, incumbents are going to have to move. This double bunks a lot of incumbents. Like most of the incumbents are double bunked here. Um, so it will require some relocation in all likelihood long term. Um, but that is the map. It's the seven to one congressional map. Uh, we'll be going for the rest of the decade. The lawsuit over the legislative maps is still ongoing. Uh, Hogan did not sign any revised legislative maps. and It's unlikely he would do so. Uh, the reason is the legal grounding for congressional or for legislative maps is far sounder than for congressional maps. The state constitution specifically mentions legislative districts needing to be compact, uh, reasonably respective of, of that sort of stuff. Um, the judge that struck down the congressional map simply applied that also to the congressional maps. Uh, in terms of a realm, that's not a, that's not a judicial decision I probably would have made. Um, I'm also not a judge, but the legislative maps are certainly far more likely to be redrawn. Although, again, this is Maryland, even a fair legislative map in Maryland is still going to favor Democrats because this is a state where Democrats routinely get anywhere from 60 to 65 percent of the vote in elections. So we don't expect any any real competitiveness in the chamber aside from getting rid of some ugly lines, making some more competitive Republican targets in suburban areas and maybe screwing over some longtime incumbents that have been kind of held up. Uh, in spite of demographic changes in their areas. So that's the state of Maryland right now. What do you guys think about this before we kind of move on? Just a quick thought or two on on how the process has gone and how it ended. I was just curious, what did Larry Hogan get for this? Uh, Basically, the the state attorney general had filed an appeal uh, 
um, challenging the judge's ruling. And rather than risk it going to a higher court and being struck down, because frankly, the legal grounding for the initial ruling is kind of dubious. Now, granted, the judge didn't just use the legislative lines, mean congressional lines as well, argument. she also used the same I would also argue tenuous reasoning North Carolina used that that gerrymandered maps violate free speech, free expression, free elections, blah, 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 blah. She also used that. Um, but basically, so in, in exchange for that lawsuit being dropped and having a 100% chance of the seven to one map, uh, he dropped the appeal, which could have resulted in, as we mentioned last week, a five to three or a six to two map. Right. That would have drawn out Steny Hoyer, um, possibly. Okay. So that's so what he gets here is, is, is both sides lose something in this. Got it. Okay, because this seems like an odd decision for Larry Hogan yes. to make, considering yeah. he's trying to shore up conservative support for a presidential mm -hmm. run in 24. Uh, I think what Hogan's going to look at it here, I think what his planning is basically like, you know what, I, I was able to make sure that we uh, saved Andy Harris, which that's, that's undeniable at this point. Uh, Andy Harris is going to be uh, fine for a long time for the whole decade on this map. If he plans to stay in the whole decade, he'll be fine. You know, the second argument will be, especially if something weird happens in that sixth district, is like I may not have made it as fair as I could, but I made it more fair than it was, and I gave us. I'm the reason that we even had a shot at winning that seat in the first place. Especially if someone can pull it off. You know, again, like like Eric mentioned, it is only a Biden plus ten seat. Uh, this it was only a Clinton plus one seat. One of those weird uh. Seats where in 2016, where no one, neither of the two candidates got a majority of the vote in said district. I mm -hmm. think it was like 47 and a half to 45 and a half, uh, 46 and a half, excuse me. Something like that. Uh, between Clinton and Trump in 2016, this new sixth. Uh, mainly because it doesn't go as much into Montgomery County uh, mm -hmm. as it used to. Uh, it takes in more of that uh, north, northeast part of Frederick, which is much more uh, Republican leaning and takes out parts of uh Mont of the very deep blue parts of montgomery county and most of the parts of montgomery county it takes in is not as deep blue uh or at least uh down the ballot is not as deep blue as the rest mm. of the of those parts are so i think that's his argument there they're uh, more in line with frederick county in, in, in that regard yeah. where it's blue but it's not like 90 to 10 blue yet. exactly a lot yeah, exactly a lot of the a lot of the like it came close to rockville i think uh under the old map you know that's that's basically you get to the dc sub like true dc you know people commute mm -hmm. into dc suburbs there because i it is because you have a you have a metro station uh in rockville so that that certainly counts uh for mm -hmm. sure and there still are some more competitive areas in montgomery county the more rural portions that are i mean keep in mind that this area frederick county in particular uh used to be known as frednecks because they were just out of the dc area and were much more conservative than the rest of the area to be fair, they're still more conservative than, you know, the, the really deep parts of Montgomery County, but they're much more reliably in the Democratic column now. Um, obviously, the, the change would have been putting in Carroll County, which is in the second. That makes the second a, if this is like a, you know, if this is a historic Republican landslide, you would expect something like the second to be competitive. And it's worth noting, you know, in 2014, there were Obama plus 20 seats that were competitive and did get close to flipping. You had the John Capco seat, which was very, very Democratic at that point. Uh, you had Rochester, New York. The the problem is a uh, Baltimore County is not nearly as swingy as those areas. This this district would have voted for George Bush in two thousand four, uh, but it would not have voted for any Republican since aside from Larry Hogan. Well, uh, I would say. And we're also in a more polarized era. So. Yeah, much Absolutely. more polarized. 
Yeah, I would say the six is still a pretty viable target. I mean, keep in mind, this is an area that almost elected Dan Bongino in 2014, which I will mention every time because that, that is just that is ridiculous. We could have almost had to say four. Very we ridiculous have, looking in yeah. hindsight. Very yeah. ridiculous thing. We could have almost had to say former Congressman Dan Bongino before every introduction of Can, of can we blame that on John Delaney? I just – I want to. <laughs> I want to blame that on John Delaney. Now, we'll we'll, I, we'll blame it on him for you. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it is very fair to the point out that look in in this district you basically have you know four you have three very you know uh, two slash three very Republican counties in the very far west Maryland counties which are basically rural Pennsylvania or West Virginia whatever you want to call them other than Hagerstown those are some very deep red areas and then you've got Frederick County which has been turning blue uh, because of the suburbanization of the county. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, is definitely kind of the place where, you know, it, it reminds me more, a lot more of a Loudoun than a Fairfax, or even, even less than a Loudoun, more like a Stafford County, mm-hmm. where you could see a Republican, uh, you know, in a Republican swing year at the, in 2022, at least, where this is still kind of a new uh, thing with the suburban trends, you know, kind of push it back and do better. And then you have some outer parts of Montgomery County in Maryland, which are mostly blue parts for sure. And mostly are areas that voted for President Biden by about a 60 more 40 margin, but not as blue as a lot of the areas that used to be in there. So it's, it's going to be a fascinating to see to look at. Uh, definitely, we're starting to get as a leans Democratic seat. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where Trone, we don't really know his strength as a candidate. This is what happens sometimes if you ungerrymander maps. Or if your map goes through a dumbmander, is that you have candidates who never had to experience a race before. We saw this a lot in Texas in 2018, uh, where incumbents would really never had to campaign in a race before because they never thought they were going to have to. Uh, you know, ha- had some close or had some close races, and then you, you saw the two congressmen who lost to uh, Aldred and uh, Fletcher, one of whom was Pete Sessions, who just decided to chart back to a safer seat in 2020. Uh, you know, uh, both you know struggle with that. You know, Trone's one of those guys who I look at and say, you know, this is a guy we don't know a whole lot about. Uh, he's never had to really run a race before uh, in his life, so it's going to be kind of really fascinating to see, mm-hmm. you know, how he reacts to being in a seat that in 2022 will be within that comp- like true like you have to campaign, sir, uh, as we would call it. Like, it it's within ten points, so that's what mm-hmm. say you, you're going to have to do some work. Yeah, uh, his, his strength is money. That's basically his. He's he's one of the wealthiest members of Congress. He could pour a bunch of money into this race. The problem is, though, unlike Delaney, who actually did manage to perform competently in his district on occasion, uh, who was much more in line. He was much more. People made fun of him for being a moderate, but I would argue him being a moderate probably might have saved him in 2014, as opposed to if he actually, you know, was a progressive liberal Democrat, like someone like a Jamie Raskin or something. I Trone make- is. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, I, I make fun of him for saying that Maryland's a red state, yeah. that his district was red. <laughs> yeah, Trone is not a moderate Democrat. He is a very much a, a D.C. what He votes the way you would expect a suburban D.C. Democrat to vote, which normally that's fine. The problem is you have three very, very Republican counties that have been thrown in, plus Frederick County, which we don't know how that's going to go. And then, you know, it, it's a challenge. I, I would I think Lean's Democratic is the right rating here, and I expect most other outlets to coalesce around that in time um but if you're going to look for a place for like there's a suburban flashback or a suburban uh, knockback we saw that in virginia in 20 in 2021 or with the governor race we saw that it happened um it happened in stafford county it happened in a couple of other places 
So, you know, we'll see how it ultimately goes long term. Um, I would still put Trone as the favorite here, but it's worth noting he did run behind Biden by a small margin. He ran behind by about two to three points. Uh, whereas I think Delaney either ran about evenly with Biden or was ahead of him in 2016. I need a specific look at the details, but I don't recall um, John Delaney running far behind, um, you know, far behind anyone else in that regard. I think, actually, I'm going to go look that up right now. Yeah, he he won he won that seat by 16 points. And this was a Clinton plus or this is not a Clinton plus one seat. That was at the time Maryland sixth district was a Clinton plus 15 seat. So we actually ran slightly ahead of Clinton for a comparison there. Good for Delaney. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and move on to the next topic, which is Alaska. Uh, Dylan is very excited about this because a prediction he made came true. Finally um, came true. Yeah. <laughs> it never <laughs> happens. So Alaska, uh, they're having, uh, obviously they have the right choice voting system, which passed by a very narrow margin in a referendum. And is now the voting system for the state of Alaska. The very first test of this election will be this special election for, to replace Don Young, the uh, venerable uh, member of Congress who recently passed away. Um, the preliminary special, the, the special primary is going to be held on June 11th. This is a jungle primary uh, where everyone can vote for one candidate, regardless of party. And the top four candidates go to a runoff. Um, because of this, uh, frankly, I would argue, ridiculous system, like in California, everyone and their mother is filing to run for this election. Uh, there are a lot of candidates listed right now. If you go to Wikipedia, there are literally dozens of candidates that have already filed. 51 um, candidates. It's 51. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous, I would argue. I would argue that's very, very bad. Um, this is not a good thing. Most of them are independents who are going to gather anywhere from zero to five votes, I, I would suspect. Uh, but a couple of interesting candidates have already declared. We mentioned, obviously, uh, Nick Bagus III. Um, John Coghill has applied or has has uh has put himself up there democratic uh that's a great name <laughs> yeah uh, emil naughty who was the nominee in 1973 is applied as kind of a joke campaign i would assume uh you obviously have uh you know al gross who was most notable for spending a lot of money in alaska only to run behind uh joe biden in alaska uh but the big one the big one who was announced is sarah palin the former governor of alaska and vice presidential nominee uh palin uh is notable for a lot of things. Um, setting off the Tea Party movement, being a really exciting vice presidential nominee at first before kind of imploding on the national stage, uh, resigning midway through her term as governor uh, to do basically nothing for the last decade, and now has has uh, joined the race and is endorsed by President Trump. Uh, normally, we'd have no idea what's going on in Alaska because there's very little polling. With this new system, we have even less idea of what is going on in Alaska. Um, Based on my calculations that I have done and have looked at in elections, I would suspect the most likely scenario here is that three Republicans make the runoff and Al Gross. That would be my expectation. There's not a credible Democrat running so far. It doesn't appear there will be. Al Gross is basically de facto Democratic nominee, as he was uh, last time. The difference being, obviously, he ran in the Democratic primary last time and was labeled as a Democrat as such. This time he's labeled as an independent because he's running in the jungle primary. Um, so in all likelihood, one of those three Republicans will be Sarah Palin, but there will likely be two other Republicans on the ballot. And we have no idea how this is going to go. This is assuming she even makes the runoff. It's quite possible she doesn't. We really don't know. Um, when she resigned, mm -hmm. she was not necessarily the most popular governor in the country. Her political influence has been kind of waning 
uh, quite a bit. Alaska is a big state. There's a lot of new people in Alaska moving to Anchorage. So what do you guys think of this? How do you see this is going? Uh, obviously, we have the race rated as safe Republican. We're not going to be changing that anytime soon. Um, there's an abundance of evidence at this point. We, we, we do not consider this race competitive. But what do you think is going to happen here? And, and what is your thoughts on the, the entry of, of the former governor of Alaska into this race? Maximum chaos. <laughs> Maximum chaos. I, I, I can't really, I think, say it any better than that. You know, uh, it's, it's such a fascinating thing. It's, it's been a prairie where even just among American history to see any failed presidential or vice presidential candidate, uh, decide to hop back into politics, especially in the modern age, um, you know, post Reagan era, it is very rare to see anyone who fails at a race, uh, hop back into politics if they weren't already, uh, you know, scheming to run for a, a seat again, uh, you know, a la, a la Paul Ryan in uh, 2012 when he was running for re-election in his congressional district at the same time he was uh, Mitt Romney's vice presidential nominee. But otherwise, uh, you know, this is this is an interesting this is an interesting attempt to come back. Well, uh, and it should be said that uh, Palin is certainly not the only uh, serious Republican candidate uh, in the race. Uh, Josh Rivek. Uh, who was someone who was a who was a big part of uh, Congressman Young's uh, office uh, early in his career? He's currently a state senator in the Alaska Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, he he's currently uh, running for this seat. Obviously, we already mentioned uh, Nick Begich III, who's got the Begich name, the the Begich Republican, certainly the uh, black sheep of that family. But uh, <laughs> he's currently running. Uh, John Kogel should at least be given. Uh, some mention uh, he is an, uh, he was a former majority Republican majority leader of the Alaska Senate from 2013 to 2017. Certainly someone who should be uh, given some mention on that uh, on that front, uh, as well as uh, some other potential, you know, interesting candidates. But those are kind of really the top four on the Republican side. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, interestingly, on the Democratic side, we do have a state representative uh, Democrat. Uh, uh, Adam Wool is running. Uh, he's from the fifth district in the Alaska House of Representatives. Uh, he's running right now for that seat. Obviously, Emil Naughty, who is 89 years old, is decided to run again. We, as Eric said, we don't really know how that campaign is going to act, can how I that is going to go. Can I just say the Sarah Palin story is maximum chaos, but that guy running that's the best meme I've seen. Maybe in a campaign <laughs> cycle, period. 89 years old, running after 43 years out of politics. Fantastic. And obviously, of course, then Al Gross officially running on a purely uh, independent label uh, this time. That'll be an interesting topic. Uh, a lot of people said, uh, a lot of analysts kind of uh, have at least some belief that uh, Gross uh, having to take on parts of the Democratic, uh, being kind of literally Democratic independent, uh, on the ballot in Alaska, uh, really started to bite at him. Uh, in the end, it's kind of proven, you know, we saw, uh, uh, you know, uh, Elsie, Elise Galvin, uh, who ran for the house against Don Young as kind of more of a true independent, uh, at least under that label in 20, uh, 2018 and 2020 do better than, uh, gross who did have to take on, uh, the democratic label since he did run in that old democratic libertarian and independence primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did have to take on that label. So it'll be interesting to see how Gross does here as a true independent, especially if one of these Democrats, uh, whether that would be maybe Wool or Naughty, uh, maybe makes a better run at this seat than right now we think they do. 
Uh, that'll be really interesting to see how that would affect Gross's campaign. Uh, you know, Pete, there are, and then I would I would be sure there are certainly some voters who probably don't look at him right now uh, in the greatest uh, light who are Democrats in Alaska who are kind of like, well, you know, we we, we kind of hyped you up, man, and then you kind of just didn't do a whole lot. You lost by like twelve points, which was kind of just kind of disappointing. You were the worst performing one of us on the ballot. So, mm-hmm. you know that that is something. You know that is something that sticks in voters' heads. We forget that. Certain there are voters who will remember people who lost. Uh, and they will be upset by that. So we'll see how kind of this plays in. But, you know, there's kind of there is kind of this pretty clear, let's let's say, like top six, top seven hierarchy, though. Uh, yeah. Race. So I do want to. OK, Sarah Palin, not a credible human being. Uh, she's kind of a meme. But after four years of Trump, can we really say that somebody who imploded on the national stage is out of the race i mean no yes she made a bit of a joke of herself she got a lot of negative headlines and she didn't leave office super popular but she was pretty popular for a lot of her time in office um Mm -hmm. and the trump endorsement i don't know how much that'll help in alaska but it's certainly good media for her um Mm -hmm. again i don't know how much that'll help trump lost uh, trump won alaska by 10 points which i don't know the history of alaskan politics that feels close for them considering they're a traditionally red state at least in the modern era at least yeah Mm -hmm. post post 80s 90s era uh that's for sure kind of uh that was one of the pretty bad republican performance yeah i think the closest to that would probably be obama losing it by 14 in 2012 2008 is kind of an outlier because Palin was very, very popular at that point. So, so McCain actually won Alaska by 22 points, which is Oof. pretty wild. And that's still down. That's still down from Bush uh, to, to keep that in mind. So yeah, it, that, that's a pretty good result for, you know, for, for yeah. Democrats, all things considering. So, I mean, yes, Al Gross underperformed Biden and uh, Glavin. Is yeah. Galvin, Galvin was Galvin. the closest, was the closest one they had. I think she only lost her race by maybe eight. I think. Yeah, yeah, eight or nine points. It was the only one that wasn't double digits. Uh, and I am sleeping on Al Gross, but I am keeping one eye about a quarter and a half open. <laughs> um, <laughs> not to see if he wins. I don't think he will. To see if he passes, say, 40%. Um, but I, yes, there are other credible Republicans, but Sarah Palin probably has the name recognition and the Trump endorsement. So yeah, I know nothing about Alaska, but I would probably see her as the odds on favorite at the moment, provided she doesn't run a Mo Brooks campaign, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't think she will. That's yeah, fair. That, that would be unlikely to happen in Alaska. Uh, the, the area to watch, which I'll mention, will be the native areas of Alaska. Republicans and Democrats both make outreach to native voters all the time in Alaska. It's a large chunk of the electorate. Um, this might be surprising to some who would expect Republicans would just ignore native voters, but people like Dan Young and uh, Dan Sullivan were very, very popular with native voters. If you look at actually where they did, uh, Sullivan won, it overperformed in large part because he did a lot better in native communities in the North Slope than than Trump did. Um, so, you know, there, that'll be an area to watch here. Um, so we really don't know how, how that's going to go. Uh, 
you know, these are these are competitive areas. Alaska has a lot of areas that are reasonably competitive. So we'll we'll be paying attention to the race. We don't expect results to come in for a while because, like I mentioned, Alaska already takes weeks to count all the votes. Unlike New York or California, they have a good reason, which is that it's a gigantic state with a ton of rural voters in disconnected areas that are far from main roads, let alone airports. Um, so, you know, it's it. They have a they have a pretty good reason. The problem is this 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 system in the ranked choice phase will take a lot longer. The actual counting of this first ballot will probably take about the same as it usually would because it's still first past the post, just four people advancing instead of one. Um, and it's a large ballot. It may even be easier to count. But that top four will, will be probably be waiting a while to figure out who's won unless it's you know a single person having consolidated a massive chunk of the vote. Uh, but we'll keep you updated on it as that comes through. Uh, so next up, we've got updates for two special elections, the first being a California's 22nd congressional district where votes are still being counted for the uh, the jungle primary there. Um, so the surprising thing with this race is this is uh, the seat for retiring Representative Devin Nunes. He resigned midway through his term, not due to any scandal or anything, but to become the president or executive of Truth Social, uh, Trump's floundering social media network, which could be potentially be going the way of Trump's days. Uh, it, it, yeah. In terms of career choices, bad this is a idea. Career choice. Yeah, this is this is this is not one of them. This is not one of the best ones. When you're um, in line to become the head of the oversight committee in a uh, or Intel, whichever one it is, in a Republican Ooh, house, but you yeah. decide to go run Trump's social media. Smart career decisions, everybody. <laughs> Give Devin yeah. Nunez a round of applause and for again, smart career decisions. Say, yeah. yeah, say what you yell about Trump's electoral success. He's unequivocally far more successful at winning elections than he is starting up random businesses and in specific industries, aside from like hotels and casinos and stuff. I mean, earlier I mentioned Trump stakes. There's a bunch of other businesses like this that have just ended up in, in the in the shitter for lack of a better term <laughs> trump airline yes, yeah, trump airline trump airline trump, didn't he have trump water i thought there was like a water he did business. he had trump yeah, water don't for forget a minute. the steak don't yeah, forget steak. the steaks yep um oh. so that's a career move so this seat was trump plus five uh this is in the central valley which as joe Szymanski has written about before at elections daily really good article you should go read it about the elect regions to follow in the United States. One of the swingiest regions in the country is the Central Valley. Uh, this is a seat that Romney won by about 15 points, then Trump won by about 10, and then last time he won it by about five. So this has portions of uh, Fresno and Tulare counties, most of the eastern wider portions of Fresno, and then some some areas in a couple of other counties um, that are that are you know significant to look at. But basically, this is a Central Valley seat. Pretty decent Hispanic population. Uh, it's been redrawn this time. Um, David Valdo is being moved into the seat. It became a Democratic vote sink, about a Biden plus 10 seat. Uh, the northern seat, uh, which is basically Valdo's seat, got redrawn. We got Trump plus 13, and I think there's – or not Trump plus 13, a Biden plus 13. And then there's about a Biden plus 11 seat in Stockton. Um, so all of these areas are feasibly competitive for Republicans in a wavier. And before you, you go at me for saying that – Look back to 2010 and 2014. Democrats in the Central Valley do really terribly in Republican midterms. In fact, uh, the Central Valley is still largely Republican um, at the gubernatorial level. Democrats have not won Fresno County in, I believe, at least 50 years. It's been decades since they won Fresno County in a gubernatorial race, even in 2018. So already this is an area where you would expect Republicans to kind of overperform a little bit. What you don't expect is 65 to 35 
uh, margin for the Republican candidates in the special election. We're still waiting for some of the votes to come in. It's very possible this could change, but it's also very possible it could change the other way. The second place Republican, who is in third now, has actually gained votes. Uh, the two of the top three candidates in this are Republicans. Uh, this will go to a runoff, this, this 22nd congressional district race. This will go to a runoff. We obviously will be determining, um, you know, you know, determining this result when it comes out. Um, let me look at the exact details here so I can give you the specific um, special election thing. But the big thing here is this Republican overperformance. Even if this goes down to something closer to 60-40, this is a really, really bad performance from Democrats. Uh, no, no way about, no way to put it. Um, like in Texas, the candidates on the ballot here are not going to be long-term representatives. Uh, the top two right now are Conway, uh, Connie Conway, a Republican, and uh, Lauren Hubbard, a Democrat. Um, those are the two that were likely to advance here. Um, again, the November candidates are different, uh, will be different. Uh, Connie Conway is not a candidate. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, Lauren Hubbard is not a candidate. But pretty much everyone here is just running as a placeholder for the actual candidates later in the year. So this is as far as a no stakes, no spending contest as you would get. Um, so obviously we have, I think in our ratings, we have the Valdau seat as a toss up or as leans democratic. I think we have all of these three seats. They're all toss -ups. Yeah. The ones that are held by Republicans are toss ups. Not, yeah, the, the, ones not, that are the, held... not the democratic held ones. Yeah. The democratic ones are probably leans or likely. I would think the Stockton likely, and then probably the other one. Leans uh, likely more... which yeah. direction? Yeah. It's it, it, uh, democratic. democratic. Yeah. These Just... are the, the, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the seat is obviously substantially redrawn, so this really doesn't matter. The only thing this matters for is just a pretty big overperformance. Going from about Trump plus five to uh, Republican plus 30 on the generic ballot. The other one you could look at for a comparison here is Texas's sixth district. Or, yeah, I believe it was a sixth district, which had its own special, which mm -hmm. resulted in Democrats uh, taking a Trump plus three seat and not making the runoff. I believe the final margin there was about 60 to 40 Republican in the jungle primary. Uh, we'll keep the update on this. The reason nobody has covered this race is nobody important is running. This is about as low stakes of a, of a race as you'll get. Unlike our next race that we will mention, which is Texas 34, uh, the special election for Texas 34, which is really interesting. The reason it's interesting is the Republican candidate for the special is almost certainly going to be the Republican candidate for the general election. Uh, Myra Flores is running in that. Uh, the Democrats, on the other hand, cannot put their candidate. Uh, who is going to be um, who's going to be uh, Gonzalez, they're not going to be able to put him on the ballot because he represents another congressional district already. Um, so they have a placeholder. Uh, Republicans are pretty confident here. Democrats, I think, have actually pretty much said they're not going to be spending a lot of money here. Uh, people I know in the Texas Republican Party are really optimistic about this race to the point where I've, I've heard talk about mid-decade redistricting in Texas to, to further solidify some of the lines. They did not expect things to shift this quickly. Um, let's give a little bit of an update though. What are we looking at in this race? Is Are, are we still rating as a toss up? Um, and what are we kind of seeing going forward? And what are your kind of thoughts on these two in general? Because like I mentioned in Joe's article, the reason this is important is that the Central Valley and South Texas are both two of the key regions that Joe mentioned to follow in these uh, upcoming congressional elections, the other being upstate New York. Um, these are two really, really big comparisons for a bellwether for what a national election could look like. Yeah. I mean, look, I obviously we understand that the, you know, for what it is, you know, when the actual 34th is held, it's it's going to be a different seat to be a tougher seat. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the power, the power of having an eye 
next to your name uh, and representative next to your name should not be uh, disconsidered. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something that should be disconsidered when we look at how this race is going to go. Uh, you know, I don't really care about the 22nd. Uh, you know, you can extrapolate that from all you want. Like Eric said, it's it's, it's a no-name, no-show uh, type of race where, you know, for a seat that is legit, truly not going to exist, at least of the 34, if we can say in some of its capacity, it is going to exist again uh, come, you know, November. Uh, when it comes to the, you know, to the to Kansas, you know, 20, 22nd map, you know, that, that doesn't exist at all. You know, that's, that's, that one's very, very gone. So, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see. You know, we have it right now as a toss-up. Uh, we, we understand the arguments for leans are. It's just going to be very interesting to see, you know, the ability to have a look at the Rio Grande Valley and what it's going to act like. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially, yeah. uh, at the very least, have some type of inset, you know, uh, inside look. You know, it'll be very interesting to see, very interesting to watch. Again, Flores is still going to have an up, up, uphill climb uh, in November if she wins this seat uh, in the special election. So, would it be incumbent versus incumbent? Since it would be technically, a- yes, technically it yeah. would be. I mean, it's it's it, it would be a very weird incumbent versus incumbent. Mm-hmm. Uh, type of seat, but yes, technically it would the be. The difference it. is that Flores would be representing large portions of the district as it exists in its current form, whereas Gonzalez represents basically none of the district as it exists right now. Gotcha. Uh, he is in the 15th, which does have portions of Hidalgo County, but the new 34th is has is basically stretching, has portions of Hidalgo, but is mostly Cameron going up, uh, you know, up the just south of Corpus Christi. Um, the, the you know, he doesn't represent a very large portion of the seat at all. Gotcha. Is the argument okay? And if it sounds gotcha. like we're bullish, if it sounds like we're more bullish on Flores than our rating suggests, I think we are more bullish than the rating. Uh, but we are out of an abundance of caution, we're holding it pretty firm. We're gonna wait for some polling, wait for some more information. We don't know who the Democrat is for one. And oh. you know, oh, sorry, no, uh, I was just gonna say, I mean, Democrats are in a bad position in this seat mm. because they don't have a real nominee for this special election so yeah it's yeah, uniquely I mean, bad it, I, it's a I, uniquely horrible situation to be honest yeah, yeah i mean i wouldn't even use this as too much of a bellwether because the circumstances couldn't be much worse for mm-hmm. Democrats. it's very true that's yeah. right it, truly you could have gotten no worse uh can congressman to say you know what i'm gonna leave early and become a lobbyist truly yeah. you could have like rarely gotten a worse seat <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, yes, this is an important region to watch, but I almost feel like this is a mulligan for Democrats because they're not going to have a real, there's probably not going to be a real race. Mm, I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, pride is a big factor here for for South Texas Democrats. They really don't want to lose a district like this even briefly. And, you know, the, the, the temptation to keep Flores out could be big. I, we really don't know how much spending is going to go on here, how much campaigning. Sure. Uh, all we can say is Republicans have a unique advantage in their candidate here. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because we're not judging Myra Flores to be some amazing candidate or anything. We really don't know a whole lot about her. She's a first-time candidate. But the fact that she is the candidate in November is an advantage because they have an incentive to spend here, whereas Democrats have no incentive to spend. And frankly, Democrats have no incentive to run in this race like we mentioned in previous podcasts yeah i mean run somebody everywhere but nowhere to spend your resources Mm -hmm. 
it's easier to run someone even for a hopeless race than for a race that if they win the best thing they get is they get to be a congressman for like four months five months yeah there's Um, really no incentive which is why i'm a little confused as to why anybody's running in the 22nd what are they getting out of this (laughs) Uh, it's representation for the region. The Central Valley actually does have a pretty compelling reason to be represented in Congress. Uh, Obviously, the state of California is very different than the Central Valley. Um, I think, generally speaking, there's a lot of, on the Republican and Democratic side in California, there is a lot more of a desire to make sure the Central Valley is represented long-term at all times as much as possible because it's in that uniquely precarious position of being a, being kind of neglected by both parties in the state of California throughout its tenure. Um, you know, obviously Democrats are in charge now, but you know, when Republicans were in charge, the, the focus was still on the LA suburbs. Um, you know, the, 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 the country club Republicans in orange County, Riverside, mm-hmm. uh, San Diego, San Bernardino, that was really the, the hotbed of the Republican movement in California it was never really in the central Valley. So I think that's probably the reason you have more people interested in running there. You also have elected officials who would genuinely love to be congressmen for a few months because they can sp- they can throw some money towards the Central Valley. Obviously, that happens in South Texas, but the de- you know it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a different situation. I would just say in general, I don't think there's that sense of neglect in South Texas as there is in in the Central Valley. That's just my general baseline judgment. I think there's you know there's a little bit of a different scenario. It's also a lot more a lot less diverse as a region than the Central Valley. Um, there's a bunch of reasons in theory, but we're going to go ahead and move on to our final topic, probably unless Joe wants to go over Pennsylvania a little bit, is the Ohio primary. Ohio is getting weird. Uh, we have been Wait, mentioning the, the Gibmentum the past few weeks, and now every candidate is releasing a poll, and surprise, surprise, every candidate thinks they're competitive in this race. Um, we've had J.D. Vance put out a poll saying that J.D. Vance is competitive. We've had James Timken putting out a poll that not only is, is Jane Timken really competitive, J.D. Vance is not competitive and everyone hates him. Um, well, we've had, yeah, we've had all sorts of stuff going on. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it to Joe. What is going on? Who do you think is the favorite here? Um, is there something weird going on? Like, like this is a really, really bizarre no it, this we we had no idea even a week ago if ohio was going to happen on may 3rd we still exactly. had no idea a week ago if ohio was going to happen on may 3rd because of the issues of the congressional race but somehow uh waiting it out just worked uh you know <laughs> uh i mean it's it's kind of crazy and you know i i you know they just kind of just sat on their butts, ignored the rule of the Ohio Supreme Court, and somehow forced a gerrymandered map through because the court was like, well, we can't really do much at this point because LaRue says the primary date's set. So congratulations, guys. Congrats, so, you defied the court. And you as broke, a result, we, the law and won. Yeah. And as a result, this fractured Republican primary has no time to consolidate around anyone. No. Nope. So, All these people were campaigning like they expected the primary be pushed back. And now the primary isn't pushed back. And the primary we is than, here. We have less than th- four weeks until a <laughs> primary date comes. And we will be live here. We will be on stream. We will be yep. live and we'll be covering that race. It'll be very fun because there is going to be a lot of stupid things happening that night, probably. <laughs> remember, five candidates who could poll over 10% in this race. You have stupid idiot number one and Josh Mandel. You have Mike Gibbons. You have Jane Timken. 
You have stupid idiot number two and JD Vance, <laughs> and you have Matt Dolan, and all these people have been <laughs> polling at least around ten percent of the primaries, and but you none see, above twenty-five. And yes, and you see how that <laughs> may become a problem when there's only three weeks left to campaign. Yep. You see how that starts to become a problem, Everyone and how that might be race. a bad thing yeah. because that means. We are more likely to nominate a moron who's going to win a primary with twenty five percent of the vote. Well, let that me is just a say, stupid thing. Let me just say, you are a hundred percent likely to nominate a moron. <laughs> oh, I hope. Not. Oh, I hope. Not. It, no, this is. This might be my favorite type of election, one where there's just no no logic here, <laughs> no no real base of information. It seems like Gibmentum is over. I'm sorry, Joe. And he's still <laughs> leading. He's got that 20% mark. He's going to do it with 22% of the vote. But it seems like it's still over. Like, he's not He's not still gaining. He's not going yeah. to 25 uh, or 30. Surprisingly, saying having comments or saying you're pro-choice in a Republican debate is not a good idea. Um, who would have thought? No. No. <laughs> you, hide that. you hide that until the general election. You don't you don't say that when Mandel's running a campaign yeah. about hating people who are less white than him. <laughs> and then you have, you have you have JD Vance who is running as like who's running as a extreme social conservative who was also a tanky and who also does not like Ukraine. Um, and so, you and know, who has to ask his voters if they're racist. Yes, are you are you racist? <laughs> are you a racist? A, a top five stupid ad. Truly yeah. a top okay. five. I am. I'm not a political consultant. I have never politically consulted before. I have a way to fix that ad in five seconds. Instead of "Are you a racist?" It's "They called you racist." That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> Did they call you racist? You're not racist. I know you. That's how. That's how you r- write that ad. Yeah. Don't accuse it's, your voters of. Yeah, racism. it's literally all you got to do. It's they called you racist. Because you're wanting to secure the border. Whatever. It's your voters are probably racist, JD Vance. That is who you are courting. Oddly you enough, still don't I think call them that. Is the poll is the poll still showing that he's winning the never Trumpers? Because that was the most amusing poll to have. I have no campaign. idea. No idea. That, that but, is pretty good. Um yeah, but like the, the Timken campaign poll said that he's underwater with Republican voters. Uh, obviously, the Vance campaign says that Republican voters love the racist ad. Um, they're they they're in love with the ad. Mm-hmm. And among people who had seen it, he's in the lead by a large margin. Um, so, you know, you have the Gibbons campaign. You have Matt Dolan, who's just kind of who's there, I guess. I mean, he's there. I mean, he's yeah. spent enough money to say he's there. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's there's five is- candidates here polling 10% of the vote. Hold Any on, of I- them could could theoretically win. Trump has not endorsed anyone yet. I'm sorry, this is not facetious. Who is Matt Dolan? He is Rickman. <laughs> that he, is his, not facetious. His, his family helps own the Cleveland uh, no longer Indians but Guardians. Yeah. He oh, is, okay. He is so, running. So he's, a, a, so he's uh, the son of a rich man. He's he's running no, he as is, your typical a group of a rich man with he, his brother. He is running as the typical Ohio Republican of. 2010 which is that a businessman who lives in cleveland 
or Cincinnati, who is generally Republican, but also likes infrastructure. That's basically what he's running as. He's running as Rob Portman. So your least favorite type of Republican? Uh, no, my least favorite type is J.D. Vance. This is my second least favorite type of Republican. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> We found we found someone to make Eric hate Mac Dolan less. I mean, I, you, you know it's bad when Eric hates somebody more than he hates a Republican who'll vote for infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. it's so, Ohio. Like, I, it's it, this is the Republican Party in Ohio. It's it's open. leadership is still mostly suburban. It's like, like finding a Democrat I dislike more than Kirsten Cinema and Michael yeah. Bloomberg. I mean, look, the reason. Ohio Republicans, broadly speaking, are still based out of either Columbus or Cincinnati or Cleveland. They're the largest areas in the state. The rural areas are obviously huge, but they're also new Republicans. They don't vote in primaries yet, and they're not in leadership. So that's why you've seen Republicans that are so so refusing to give up Cincinnati. They've they're you know made a Biden plus seven competitive seat because they and they can, they probably can win that seat. There's a lot of Republicans who do pretty well in that seat, but it's also it's like. You won Hamilton County 15 years ago. That doesn't mean you're going to do well in Cleveland. No. In fact, that would be a stupid idea to suggest yeah. that potentially. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that'll close up our show for the night. Uh, we really thank you guys for watching. Really appreciate um, your support. Uh, we'll continue uh, obviously next week. We'll try to fix the intro music so it doesn't sound like a funeral dirge. Um, <laughs> like that, that's the that's trap, the music. Yeah, that's the music you would expect us to play if we're announcing that elections daily is shutting down. Um, not the, <laughs> do, do, do. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we'll, we'll be back next week. You can follow us on at elections underscore daily on Twitter, elections dailycom You can find me at de Cunningham too. Uh, Joe Samansky, you can find Dylan Dylan Brown. All of them, you can find them everywhere. They're on Twitter. Names My are Twitter there. is wrong. Dylan W. Brown won. I don't know why it reset me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll correct that. But yeah, um, you, you like and subscribe if you like what we're doing. Really appreciate your support. We'll be back next week, same time, same place for Elections Weekly. Uh, thank you all for watching, and we'll see you next week.